0: Good day, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together. Glad that you are here as we continue our study of Isaiah. Today we're going to, uh, I've been warning you, I've been telling you, we are heading into a section that uh, it's got some challenges, some interpretive challenges, and uh, it's going to be fun, I think, (laughs) but it'll test your resolve to stick to the scripture and let the scripture Decide what you believe as opposed to the uh, assumptions you bring to the text. So we're going to look at that. Real quick, I want to uh, remind you that our New Covenant School of Theology courses start up again on Monday. That's this coming Monday, August 8th. We are studying the Gospel and Epistles of John. Uh, I will be teaching that course. So if you are interested, go to newcovenantschooloftheology.org, click on apply. And fill out an application, we'll get that and sign you up for that course. Uh, it's Monday, Tuesday nights, four weeks, starting at 5.30 Mountain Time. So we'd love to have you join us if you are interested in studying the Gospel of John with us. All right, so uh, let's get back into Isaiah here. I'm going to back up a couple of verses just to set the context. Uh, yesterday we saw in chapter 24, Isaiah uh, foreseeing, remember all of Isaiah This is all visions, visions that this prophet is given of things that are happening in the near term and things that are happening far off. And remember, Peter tells us Isaiah wasn't even sure what the fulfillment of these things were. He would see them and write them, declare them to the Jews, and then he would search and inquire to figure out what does this really mean? What does this tell us about the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories to follow? Is what, what Peter tells us about the prophets. So even Isaiah here doesn't understand fully what it is that he's seeing and and uh, predicting. We looked at Isaiah 24 and the, the judgment coming on the land of Israel, and if you remember, uh, if you were with us or if you weren't, let me just catch you up. We see this word earth, and it's the word Eretz in, uh, in Hebrew. It's gay in, uh, in Greek, uh, in, the, in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. And we think of earth as the globe, right? The, the cosmos, all of creation. And sometimes it means that. But I showed you several examples where it means just the land of Israel or a certain land of a different nation, like the the, the the land of Egypt, same word. So we talked about yesterday, it makes sense in the flow of Isaiah that what he's seeing is the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the people and the nations surrounding Jerusalem, because he's been predicting that all along. But it seems to, like the focus here is, uh, is centered around Jerusalem. So uh, chapter 24, verse 11 said, there is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom, the gaiety of the earth is banished. And if you know your Old Testament, and your New Testament, for that matter, uh, wine was associated with celebration, with, with joy, uh, gaiety here, as it, as it says. So uh, when there's no wine, that's not just people <laughs> wanting to get drunk. That is, uh, this, the new wine was an expression that God was going to continue to provide fruit, grapes, to make new wine. And here, there's an outcry because there's no wine, meaning God has brought devastation and the joy is turned to gloom and the gaiety of the earth is banished. And then we, we see this recurring word, desolation. Desolation is left in the city and the gate is battered to ruins. That's where we left off. So picking up there four, here's an explanation for all this. Thus, it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. So the way you get olives out of the olive tree is to strike it, to beat it, and the olives fall, and you're probably not going to get every single one. So there's going to be a few left up at the tops of the trees, or the word here, gleanings of the grape harvest. This is, he's already said this earlier in the chapter and certainly other places, there will be a remnant. There'll be some that are left, but most of the people, most of the Jews will be struck down. Most of them will be killed in God's judgment and wrath. So all of this is just continuing the theme. Now, if you've been with us, you know that over and over and over again, Isaiah predicts judgment on the Jews or other nations, Babylon, Egypt. And so on. And then sort of out of nowhere is this expression of hope. And the, the Messiah coming, the, the one who's coming, who, who will uh, reign over the earth and, and judge righteously. Right? Well, here again, we have this unexpected message of hope or statement of hope. Verse 14. They raise their voices. They shout for joy. They cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord, the majesty of Yahweh. Therefore, glorify Yahweh in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. So isn't this interesting? You've got, there's going to be so few left, it's going to be like the olive's still left on the olive tree is as that as, as you beat the olives out of it. And yet out of nowhere comes this, this crying from east and west, from the sea, the coastlands, all the way to the, the place where the sun comes up, literally is kind of how it's describing. Uh, they're, they're crying out about the majesty of the Lord, and, and there's this call, glorify him, glorify the, uh, the Lord. And notice Isaiah's response. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. What's going on here? You've got judgment, you've got people from the east or the west who are glorifying the Lord, and Isaiah pronounces a curse again, woe to me. It's Kind of like what we saw earlier in the second vision about Babylon, where Isaiah is wanting Babylon's destruction. He he he's he calls it the twilight that he was looking for that that this enemy would be defeated. And as he sees their defeat, he is he's undone. He is uh, he is stunned because of the violence. That he sees, so it's again, it's kind of out of nowhere. He's he's wanting their destruction. He sees it, and now when he actually observes all the the suffering and the and the uh, the death, man, woman, and child, he he's taken aback by by what he sees, kind of thing. Well, that's sort of what's going on here. He he hears all these cries, "Glory to the righteous one," and his response is, "Woe to me! The treacherous, the traitors are still very, very." Treacherous, very. Tre- he even emphasizes it, very treacherous. And he describes it further: terror, and pit, and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Uh, in the Hebrew, there's an assonance here, a, a repeated uh, first line kind of thing, like you know, a lot of preachers do in the lay out their outline. And terror, and pit, and snare all start with the same uh, vowel, the same sounds, and it, it's it's from one to another. This uh, this panic. And the pit, and the pitfall kind of thing, as someone has said. Um, So the inhabitant of the land is not escaping, even as the east and west cry out for the glory of the Lord, the inhabitant of the land, they're not escaping the terror that's coming. He says, then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. Why? Why? For the windows above are opened, and the foundations of the earth shake. So there's glory to the Lord everywhere and yet Isaiah is, is shaking inside as he pronounces this this uh, or announces this uh, statement that those who flee the terror that's coming, will not get very far cuz they're going to fall into a pit and it, those who manage to f- climb themselves out of the pit there's a snare and and snares remember are not um, accidental they're, right they they are put there on purpose there is a snare that someone has prepared that those who manage to get out of the pit are going to be fall victim to this trap And then he uses this language, the windows are open, the foundations of the earth shake, the earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it, that is the earth or the land, totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. This is the earth he's talking about. Now he's personifying the earth. It's broken. It's split. Uh, It's going to rise and never fall. Now we read this kind of stuff and we think earthquakes. We think this is something that's happening to the globe itself. And you've probably got apocalyptic visions in your mind from the New Testament. And you're thinking, oh, this must be the end. This must be Jesus, King Jesus before his return is going to destroy the earth. And the next couple of verses kind of sound like that. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven and the kings of earth uh, on the earth, right? So we see that kind of language and we think, oh, this is the end. Maybe, or maybe not. <laughs> As I've been telling you over and over and over again, we've got to read the Bible read the Bible. Stop reading the writings of men. Stop reading your commentaries and and your books. Read, read, read the Bible. This language is not new language. And it doesn't um, mean there's a one-to-one correlation with the visions described and a, a literal interpretation. Right. We saw this in Isaiah 13, the fall of Babylon and all the, the signs in the heavens, sun, moon, stars, that kind of thing. And, and uh, we talked about how we're not to see that as actual perturbations in the, in the heavenlies, in, the, in, the, in space and that kind of thing. So I want to go back to Second Samuel. OK, Second uh, Samuel, this is uh, David toward the end of his life, and he writes this song. And this is Second Samuel twenty-two, it says David spoke the words of this song to the Lord, in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. All right, so we have the context, we have the setting here. David, if you remember, uh, he was in battle constantly. He was a, uh, he was a. His there were always blood on his hands, not in the sense that he was guilty of murder, but uh, the Lord said he didn't want David to build the temple, to build God's house because David was a man of warfare and bloodshed. He was always fighting. And then Saul, remember, King Saul, who David replaced because God put David on Saul's throne. Uh, After the spirit of God left Saul, God replaced his spirit with with an evil spirit. And Saul went crazy and was trying to kill David over and over and over again. So David lived a significant part of his life fleeing from his enemies, and he would have to go hide in the mountains and hope that the enemies didn't find him and kill him. This was this was a significant part of his life. Uh, not sure who to trust, who was on his side, who was on Saul's side, was Saul sending spies, were other nations sending spies... Um, You know, he had to to flee his own son at one point and, and run for cover. And so he was constantly seeking, very literally, protection from those who wanted his head. So he's delivered from all this. The Lord delivered him. And this is a song that he sang in response to being rescued. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Now, we are so familiar with this terminology, but let me ask you, when he says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, does he mean literally? Is he saying here that God is a big stone area that he is going to find refuge in? Is he, is God a rock or is he a fortress? No, we, we know this. These are images describing how the Lord protected David. Now, it may have been that David actually went into the rocky places, but David is saying, ultimately, it's not these hiding places that saved me. It's the Lord. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. You see all the metaphors here. Which is it? Is he a rock or is he a shield or is he a horn? Well, God is not any of those things, right? No, he's simply describing using different images to say the Lord is the one who rescued me. He protected me like a shield protects me. He's the horn of my salvation, uh, the stronghold. He's the place of my refuge. You, you, You get that, right? You see all the metaphors David is using. He says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. Again, these words, waves and torrents, those are words taken from someone who's like in the ocean or near the ocean on a beach and huge waves come rolling over. Or torrential downpours, the kind of storms where there's lightning and and flooding, flash flooding that would sweep you away? Is David talking about literal water here? No. But the feeling as he looks out and sees his enemies coming upon him, the soldiers in in rank and file, they're coming. Or Saul uh, throwing his spear at him and and all that. It's just, he's constantly in hiding and he... He sees the waves of those who want to kill him and it's like waves crashing in and torrential downpour that is seeking to uh, to destroy him. He goes on with the imagery. The cords of Sheol surround me. The snares of death confronted me. Sheol is the place of the dead. Are we to picture this like um, some zombie apocalypse or stranger things or whatever, that, that there's this place, this death, this dark side, where cords are coming up and trying to pull David down. No, he just means that he's day in and day out thinking this could be it. I could be dying today, and he and he he feels the 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 tension, the the fear, the anxiety of dying, and it's like Sheol has these these arms, these vines that are coming up to to bring him uh, to death. In my distress, he says, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God and from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry for help came into his ears. Uh, Are we to believe that God actually was in the temple or that God actually has ears? No, no, these are all metaphors, right? Images, but they communicate something very, very real and true. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. All right, you see where I'm going with this, right? Do we move from all of these metaphors to now suddenly something very literal? That now he's saying the earth actually quakes and that the foundations of the heaven were trembling. What, what does that mean? Are there foundations in heaven? as you as you look up in the skies and you, you see the sky and you know maybe it's a blue sky or clouds uh, maybe it's night and you see beyond the sort of near atmosphere and you see into the to the stars what we call space does that area have a foundation and what is that foundation and what would it look like for them to tremble no no he he's continuing on with metaphor right God is angry. God is furious with Saul and with those who were trying to kill his king. Let me say that again. God is furious with those who are trying to kill his king. This is David we're talking about, right? Who were those trying to kill David? I will, I'll leave it there for now. Some of you know what I'm alluding to. All right. So these are all uh, images of God's anger. Smoke went out of his nostrils. Does God have a nose? Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. None of this is literal. It's just that God has now been provoked to destroy the enemies of his king. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. God doesn't have feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, and he appeared on the wings of the wind. Again, you can see what the images communicate, but we're not to say that God suddenly lassoed a A cloud or or rode on it like a motorcycle. He made darkness canopies around him and a mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Are we to believe that David was literally drowning? No. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. That's the point. That's the point. David says, I was stuck in a place where I, there's no way I was strong enough to defeat those who wanted to take my life. And God showed up and gave me victory, right? They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me forth into a broad plain. He rescued me because he delighted in me. All right, so you you see David using all this metaphor about heavens and earth and earthquakes and lightning and winds and, and all of those things to describe God's anger and fury and protection and rescue on David and David's enemies. You following all the metaphors? So now we go back to Isaiah. And Isaiah says again in 24, terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. So At this point, there's no good reason to leave the context of the Jews and the surrounding nations as God is bringing his judgment on, on his people, right? Uh, So there's this crying, this this glorying in the righteous one. Isaiah says, no, 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 no. That's not all that we see here. The traitors, they're still acting with treachery. And God's going to judge. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the land, the Eretz. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. Are we, are we to think that uh, God is actually going out and, and setting snares, traps, and that there are real pits out here so that um, there's, there are those who run out and, and flee in, in panic. There are going to be pits they fall into, and some are going to climb their way out, but God has set traps all around for them to uh, fall into. I think it's probably metaphor uh, why? For the windows above are opened, and the foundations of the earth shake. Uh, this could be literal, or it could be another example of God's anger being so devastating that it's 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 like the earth being shaken. Uh, it's like the earth broken asunder and split through and shaking violently not that this is literal, but God is on the move and and he is going to uh, devastate his enemies in his anger. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. Are are we to think that that's actually going to happen? That the earth, the globe is going to stagger around like a drunk man? Totters like a shack? No, I don't think so. This is all metaphor. It's transgression is heavy upon it. It will fall never to rise again. If earth here is land, then he's talking about a devastating judgment on the land of his people, where there won't be any significant recovery. Now, think about that. There's the fall of Jerusalem in 586. The Jews never rise to power. The, the city never becomes a, a major city of a major people again. They continue to be under the, the control of uh, Babylon, then the Medes and Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And then in 70 AD, it is devastated once again. Hmm. Could that be what he's foreseeing here? So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high, the kings of the earth on earth. Here the NAS is doing a little interpreting here instead of translating. The word heaven is not in the uh, Hebrew. Uh, it says the Lord will punish the the army of the height of heights. Now that may be the heavens as we think of it, but when, when you think of heaven, you tend to think of, I do, of uh, the place where God dwells and the, like he's punishing the uh the angelic realm here maybe it's possible but it could simply be describing again the, the height of heights the, the the kings of earth on earth that uh more of this worldwide cataclysmic language to describe th- what it's going to be like for his people uh and and those when he brings these nations assyria babylon and so on against his uh I guess his people, they'll be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. What does that mean? That's a great question. (laughs) And if you want to know my thoughts on it, you're going to have to wait until tomorrow. (laughs) Because our time is up. It's getting strange. It's getting weird. And don't hear me saying in any of this that I have infallible understanding of all these things. But I am trying to make us stick to the text and the context and not automatically jump to uh, what seems good as we just you know typically do our devotional reading and read a few verses at a time and you know we think we know how this is all going to pan out. Uh, all of this stuff going on in the heavens, it's all repeatedly used in the scripture to describe God's wrath and anger, but it's not literal. There's so much metaphor here. All right, folks. Well, our time is up. Um, uh, Martin says, did you watch the videos? I haven't, and and part of that's by choice, brother. It's not just I'm blowing you off, but I, I'm kind of at a place now where I'm, I really want to steer clear of the writings of men as much as I can and let the scripture say what it says. I'm very familiar with most of the arguments on all sides of these things, and I just want to stick to the scripture, and I would encourage you to do it too. Uh, you sent me the one link uh, the, and, and said that uh, Gil had said the uh, everlasting covenant earlier in Isaiah is the new covenant. I don't think so, as I showed you. Um, so anyway, that's uh, uh, that's kind of where I'm coming from there. Dale says, always building suspend, suspense and uh, ending on a cliffhanger. <laughs> exactly. Got to get you back tomorrow. All right, folks, have a great day in the Lord and uh, we will see you tomorrow. God bless.